Hey, I'm Benjamin Portnoy, the founder of Side Hustle Elevator. Side Hustle Elevator provides support, tools, training, and community to help you make more money and passive income through fun and fulfilling side jobs. And welcome to my interview series where I talk with people who I know are going to help you in your own side hustle to get better faster and make more money. With that, let's dive right in. Hi there, I'm Benjamin Portnoy from Side Hustle Elevator, and welcome to my conversation today with Francois Jeffrey. Jeffrey, there right? we go. You did. Okay. <laughs> we, uh, we had a long conversation before we went live here on how to properly pronounce his name, so hopefully I got it right. Um, so today we're going to learn how to simplify and streamline the importation of private label products and uh, we're going to talk with Francois about this. He's an industrial engineer and the director of business development at Noviland. Did I get that right? You did. You okay. did. I hear a lot of pronunciations of it, but that was right. Good. Um, well, it's because I did my homework. A company that <laughs> <Thank> uh, <God. laughs> helps businesses around the world source and purchase products from over 3,000 Asian manufacturers. Uh, Francois started at Noviland, is just the fourth team member and has had a hand in building out every aspect of the company from sales and marketing to operations and software. So first of all, Francois, welcome. I'm glad you could join me. Thank you for having me. Really appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure, man. I've really actually been looking forward to this. I've been doing personally a lot of exploration into um, sourcing and FBA and just how that whole ecosystem works. And I know it's uh, growing day by day. So before we get into that, tell me what is Noviland? Yeah, so we are a sourcing company. We handle the entire sourcing process and purchasing process uh, for private label Amazon sellers as well as other uh, small to medium sized businesses. Um, and so what that means, basically someone comes to us with an idea um, and we get it manufactured. We oversee the entire manufacturing process. Uh, we handle quality control management. We handle logistics all the way to the final warehouse. And why is that important? If I'm a new seller, why do I need somebody like you instead of doing the process myself? Great question. Um, so I think we could start off by asking, do you do your own taxes or have you ever hired like H&R Block to do your taxes? Yeah, that's a good question. And <laughs> so you simplify the process, you help walk people through what could be a potentially bumpy road with a lot of things that could go wrong. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's extremely risky. I mean, there are services out there um, similar to ours, but there's also marketplaces like Alibaba, for example. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's sort of like a Craigslist where any supplier can go on there and register as a supplier, um, you know, establish themselves for a year. They could even have their own purchases, have, you know, friends and family that are purchasing from them. Um, and it's a really pay to play environment. So they could, you know, verify themselves as a gold supplier even uh, for a couple thousand. Mm. Um, but they're still on the other side of the world. You have no idea who it is you're working with. Whereas we're, you know, based right here in California. Uh, we have another office in Atlanta and we have offices in China as well as Vietnam. Uh, so we handle the entire process for you. So you don't have to send any money overseas. You don't have to uh, be left waiting. Are they going to reply to me? Are they going to, you know, WeChat message me late at night? We just handle all of it for them. Uh, so it really simplifies the process, makes it safer, um, and it really mitigates all those risks. Okay. So your boots on the ground here in the USA, and you were you're not just some shop where. Uh, you know, you, you call yourselves uh, an intermediary. You really do have relationships with these 3,000 suppliers? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it took years to build out. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, we didn't go to each factory and visit them and say, hey, you know, we want to onboard you. That would take forever. Yeah. Uh, a lot of it was done by our business development team in China. Um, okay. So establishing partnerships with, um, you know, various strategic partnerships, actually, uh, whether it's with, uh, you know, local industry leaders, or it's going to trade shows and meeting you know, several factories at a time, making sure that we could visit them, vet them, uh, learn about their backgrounds, their histories, uh, learn what they're good at, learn what they're not good at, how long they've been in business. I mean, there's so much that goes into factory vetting. Yeah. Um, but yes, in regards to like the over 3,000 factories, I think it's a little bit over 3,200 now uh, wow. when we just started with a, little, uh, a couple hundred. 
Um, and our founders, you know, their background is in manufacturing. Their families have been in it for decades. So that really made things a lot easier, uh, as well as, you know, having personal connections there and, and understanding uh, suppliers in China, really. That's super cool because you hear, you know, the gurus out there are selling this as an opportunity that you can private label a product and be making millions of dollars in the next three months. But the reality of it is that this is not an easy thing to start with. It's fraught with risk and it does help to have somebody navigating you through the process who's been at it for a long time. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And you're right. There are those gurus that do make those empty promises, but mm -hmm. I mean, it's, you know, the trick of the trade, right? They want people to sign up to their courses. Yeah. Um, I mean, if you were able to successfully source your product within three months, that would astound me, yeah. <laughs> uh, especially for, for new Amazon sellers. So yeah, yeah we, we try to make it as simple as possible for them. Um, keep everything centralized right in a single software and also, you know, provide them with the reports, provide them with updates. Um, they can call us at any time, which is a huge benefit when you're sourcing from overseas factories. Um, and they have full access to an entire team. Okay. And so you mentioned the website. They, you really have built a robust backend where it's user-friendly. People can get in and see what the updates are. And um, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, exactly what you said. Uh, it really centralizes and keeps everything in a, a single place where they can track all those updates, uh, where they can submit their RFQs. They could uh, see the What's quotes. What's an RFQ, first of all? RFQs are requests for quotes. Okay. Um, and so, yeah, they could see their different MOQs there, minimum order quantities. Mm -hmm. uh, they could see the different tiered pricing. They can message us back and forth, uh, whether it's within the RFQ stage, whether it's within the sample stage. Uh, production updates continuously throughout the entire process. Uh, yeah. We could even get pictures at the factory itself for them, um, which good. is pretty cool. I mean, it's yeah. not necessary, but it's it's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, you know, shipping updates, uh, and it it really allows us to work in a lean process, which mm -hmm. you know, with my industrial uh, industrial engineering background, is tremendous. It's awesome. I'd love it. Um, <laughs> so any process that I could see that we can improve and really incorporate more technology in. Uh, the better. Uh, and, and that way, you know, we can also come in with as low of a markup as possible and really be competitive with this pricing. That's great. So let's start from the beginning. If somebody wanted to start their own private label business, they let's say they have some money to spend. Um, what is uh, what would you suggest as far as first steps they should take either with you or on their own? Uh, what should they know as they're getting into it? What's something they should keep in the back of their mind? Just walk us through that process. Yeah, yeah. So first things first, I would say is doing product research homework. Um, and when I say that, I, I don't mean going to an Amazon listing and you know seeing this stainless steel mug and saying, I simply want a stainless steel mug. Mm -hmm. uh, you really want to get into the nitty gritty things such as you know the dimensions of it, what material goes into it, how you want to package it, even if you don't have the design, just knowing how you want to package it to begin with is, is tremendous when it comes to pricing. And a lot okay. of times that's you know where a lot of uh, Amazon sellers fall short when they go on to Alibaba because they see that, you know, let's say this mug is, is 30 cents there. But then when you add in the customized packaging, when you add in the the styrofoam, but also known as you know EPS expanded polystyrene um, to keep it safe during transport, uh, when you add in the tariffs, um, when you add in the fact that uh, they can't get that price at 200 units, they have to get it at half a container. Yeah. Um, when you add in all these different steps, uh, it, it, it really adds up. Uh, and so doing your product research and approaching a factory with all of the product information, with all the packaging information, with the quality control measures that you really want to be inspected uh, you know, it, with the final product, then the factories are more willing to give you a better price. They're more willing to get you a better minimum order quantity even, and even more willing to work with you. So doing your product research uh, and knowing a target price that you really want to get to, I think is, is a really important first step um, that not many sellers want to do because it takes mm -hmm. a few hours. Obviously, mm -hmm. you want to jump right into it, start getting pricing, and then you see like what's uh, going to be feasible to sell, what's not. Um, but it, it's really the opposite. The more information you can gather, the more you can provide that factory, uh, the more they see it as a, a collaboration. It's, it's okay. a two-way road. 
So how do I, uh, even before that, how do I verify? Now, let's say you held up your uh, your Tumblr there. Mm -hmm. um, there are a lot of Tumblrs on the market and I could be saying, I could hold that up and say, well, this looks like a good product. Now, how do I verify there's a market for that? And how do I get into that market? Where do I do that research? Now, I know a lot of our users use Jungle Scout. Okay. Uh, and some of them also use uh, a few other apps that are out there. Uh, I know there might be some on sermando.com mm -hmm. um, that are listed. I know some of them just work one-on-one -on -one with their coach to do more market research okay. um, and establish a niche. Um, and, and that way, you know, when they're branding the product, they can appeal to this niche, Yeah, uh, which apparently is, is a lot easier than uh, just kind of throwing something at the wall and hoping that it sticks. Yeah. And I've heard that's one of the major landmines that a lot of new sellers run into is they base it on their own interests versus validating that there is a market there and right. how to niche down and really figure out how to appeal to that market. And, uh, get, you know, it makes sense to have red ones going to this market and, you know, giant ones going to this market. So, right. Okay. Um, so what's, what are some of the biggest, aside from that, what are some of the biggest mistakes you see new sellers making getting into it? By well, the way, my, my, uh, co-host just got here. <laughs> this is Savannah. And, oh, oh, hey, Savannah. Uh, she, yes. She, like has a good cat. An, she has an MBA. <laughs> MBA in. And a uh, master's in uh, tuna administration, I guess it's an MTA. <laughs> this um, is one of the perks of working from home. You have uh, <laughs> frequent guests. Yeah, when I'm in Pittsburgh, I have a 110-pound German shepherd oh. named Pongo. So, yeah, he always lays down at my feet or he'll be right next to me and he'll hear like a car go by and start growling a little bit. I'm like, you need to stop it. We have a call. <laughs> Boy, you don't even need a security system or a weapon at home, do you? With Not the, with that with him around. So anyway, um, let's get in, into yeah. Uh, sorry some for sorry for getting all mistakes here. people make. Uh, so uh, one of the biggest things, as I just mentioned, is really not doing enough product research. Okay. Um, and not coming to the factories uh, with an established idea. A lot of times they'll say, you know, this is sort of what I'm looking for. These are some of the customizations I want made. But the factories are just not going to take them seriously at that point. Um, it's not how a lot of sellers imagine where the factories are dying to try to get everyone's business. Yeah. I mean, if we remember it, uh, you know, not even two decades ago, they were primarily working with established businesses where they would come to them with RFPs, requests for uh, you know, different projects, yeah. and then they would uh, have all the specifications listed out. They would have technical drawings. So shifting this over to e-commerce, where now they're not working with container-sized orders, mm -hmm. and now instead of working with one large client, they're working with, you know, dozens of sellers that are requesting different products. Not coming to them prepared is a sign of, I don't care too much about your time. And in doing that, they're not going to care too much about you. So if you want to get get the best pricing, best MOQs, definitely come prepared. Um, I do have a checklist out there somewhere where it sort of walks through a request for a quote and some some of the different things that you might want to look for in a product. Okay. Could you get that to us and I could put it in the show notes? Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. I'll get it to you. Okay. Um, by the way, if you see me typing here, it's my notes. Keeping notes while we're going keeping tabs on me, <laughs> not on you. Just making sure that I'm keeping that we're covering all the the bits and pieces, just to yeah. make sure we present a rounded picture here. Um, by the way, MOQ minimum order quantity. Um, Todd, let's talk a little bit more about that and working with uh, people overseas. Now, I think at, we're in America, and so we'll speak to that. Uh, in North America that there's sometimes people approach, whether it's this or working with outsourcers, uh, people who do outsourcing mm -hmm. uh, in other countries, that it's easy to see uh, them as a number or a, a, you know, somebody on a platform across the, on the other side of the globe. Mm -hmm. um, how do you suggest somebody view a, a product rep or a, I'm sorry, a factory representative on the other side of the world, because those are people. So 
how do you approach those relationships? Imagine you're walking into a store mm -hmm. and someone approaches you and they say, do you want any help? You're not going to ignore them and blindly just keep walking. Mm -hmm. You respond to them because they are humans at the end of the day. Uh, and so what a lot of, I think, sellers uh, really need to look at it as is a collaboration and more mm -hmm. of a partnership than it is a transaction. Uh, where you know the b2c mentality is 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 very transactional you know yeah. someone you have a product someone needs to buy that product yeah whereas here you're developing a product right you're developing the packaging you're developing you're trusting them with thousands of dollars to ship your product successfully to an amazon fba warehouse mm -hmm. um, you're trusting that if anything goes wrong they're going to take care of that so that's where the difference between a transactional mindset and more of this partnership collaboration mindset uh, really differs. And, that's and that's where I, I think Amazon sellers uh, should approach it in, in more of a collaboration and more of a partnership mentality. I also saw you mention in another interview about um, that you can negotiate for price to get a lower price, but if you're just trying to get the bargain basement lowest price you can, because you heard that you can just beat these manufacturers over the head and get a low price, that your product and your relationship will ultimately suffer. Can you speak to that a little? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, one of the biggest things that, uh, you know, I especially learn in uh, industrial engineering is that, there are so many moving parts when it comes to manufacturing that they mm -hmm. have to find a way to make a profit somehow. And yeah. Chinese factories are already running on extremely low profits because the competition is out there. There yeah. is going to be another factory that might be more willing to work with that price. Okay. Um, so when you're pushing and pushing and pushing for a lower price, there's going to be a cost to it. Uh, you know, whether it's them compromising the quality, uh, cutting out quality assurance, uh, which is different than quality control. It's essentially inspections throughout uh, the manufacturing process. Uh, maybe they're using a cheaper material. Uh, maybe they're using uh, ultimately a different material or not including one of the key features in that product. Um, I mean, there's so many different things. I, I, I was at uh, the affordable shop and destination not too long ago. It was back in March, I think, in Vegas. Hmm. Um, and I heard Tim Jordan from the private label legion speak, and he was telling hmm. uh, yeah, the audience about one of his stories. About and, and one of the stories was that he was pushing for that price. Yeah. He was pushing, I think it was like, I think he said five or ten percent um, lower than what they were offering. And eventually, they had sent him a product that was made out of a plastic injection molded uh, material, and I think it was like a, a syringe, a plastic syringe, and they had thinned out the walls on it so much that when you tried using it, it broke wow. immediately. But that's, mm. that's you know, the cost of, I really need to get this lower. Now, if you're working with, you know, a five to 10% difference, it might just be worth saying, you know what, I understand that we can't get it to this, uh, you know, price at this quantity. What quantity do I have to get it to, to get it, you know, 10% lower? Yeah. Now, if it's 20 or 30% different uh, or higher, what they're quoting you, then maybe they're quoting the wrong product. And that mm -hmm. happens all the time, actually. Mm. Uh, whether it's you know a different material, uh, maybe it's uh, certifications that they have to acquire in order to get you that material. If it doesn't require certification, it's probably cheaper. Um, maybe it's the way they package it, uh, which is going to be cheaper. Maybe it's a different region. Maybe they already make that product, um, so they could just you know take it off the line and, and get you some of them. Um, so if it's 20 or 30% different, I would just make sure that they're quoting the right specifications. Okay. Um, and again, that goes back to doing the product research and making sure that you know what it is uh, you're looking to manufacture. Yeah. So doing your own research and then when you come to a company like Noviland, mm -hmm. you can help walk people through the process and really understand each level and where you should be spending your money, saving your money. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, so right when someone signs up, we do have this step where, you know, we hop, I personally hop on a phone call with just about every user. Hmm. Uh, actually, I would say every user in the past year I have had a conversation with. And I ask them, you know, how much research have you done? We take a look at the request for a quote. We see what specs they have, if they included, you know, a target price, what else they could include. Um, and a lot of it comes with experience of, you know, 
I've worked with certain products or you know categories in the past. So I'm able mm -hmm. to suggest, you know, maybe you want to find out, let's say you're doing, you know, thank you cards. Yeah. And you just know that you want a thank you card, you know the size of it, you know that you want it in a box. Um, but the one missing feature there is you don't know the grams per square meter, I think it is, GSM, mm. right? Which is like the paperweight, uh, which is very, very critical to the pricing. The higher mm. the GSM, the higher the price. So there was a time where we uh, had quoted, uh, I think it was like 20 or 30% higher than someone's expectations. And then when we found out that they were actually looking for something much, much, much thinner, we got it to like 5% lower than what they were actually looking for. Hmm. So knowing those specs is is crucial. Yeah. It's easy to be the big picture person uh, and be excited about an idea, but then it helps to have somebody like you guys to translate that into reality and the minutia that goes into getting the deal done and then making a profit off of it. Right. Right. And I mean, we work with everyone with our product specialists, with our factory specialists, with our, you know, Noviland account manager here in the US. Uh, as a team, we try to get them as much information as possible. Whereas if they were trying to source from someone directly, they probably just will ignore them because they're not mm -hmm. prepared. Yeah. And they want people to be prepared when they approach them. Um, so our expertise in knowing what the factory wants and what they're expecting, uh, and us being able to gather all this from the users first, uh, really helps us out with getting a better price for them too. That's very cool. Now, in the interest of transparency, how does Noviland make its profit on each deal? Yeah, so we have a markup on every uh, quote that we provide, um, and that's a scaling range. Uh, and the easiest way that I explain this to uh, everyone that asks is that let's take a roofing nail, and a mm -hmm. roofing nail costs less than a penny. Um, now, we don't have minimum order values or minimum order quantities that we set. It's whatever the factory is willing to do. Um, so if they're willing to do, you know, a thousand nails, that's what, 10 bucks, something like that. Mm -hmm. Did I do that right? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's $10. Um, but for us to cover our overhead, we might have to have a little bit higher of a markup, let's say, you know, 12%, 13%. Okay. Whereas we also have products that are, you know, $60, $70 uh, FOB, where we can't have that same markup. It has to be lower, it has to be sometimes under 5%. Um, and that's where, you know, uh, we will make sure that we're competitive by any means. Mm -hmm. um, and we're getting the best price and, and not only that, the most accurate price. Okay. So a, a slight markup that's mm -hmm. uh, in, in theory is going to pay for itself in the right. ease of use and uh, making sure the deal gets done right. 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 I mean, if you can go to the store and buy something for a dollar or you could send your friend to the store and buy it for a dollar, why would you get off your couch? <laughs> <laughs> your friend could go to the store. So that's, that's how we see it. Uh, and we don't make any money until someone places an order. Gotcha. Right. So we, we, understand that we have to be competitive in order to win your business. Yeah, makes sense. So I heard you talking about a long-term pricing strategy, and I, I'd like to know more about that. I think it's easy to get excited about uh, you know starting your own brand, but you should have expectations about what this is going to be long-term. Um, and that once you get that first order in and produced and returned and sold, you have the next step. So let's talk about that kind of a long-term strategy. Do you uh, look at things in you know six months, a year, five years, 10 years? How should somebody approach starting their own private label? So I think that really depends on who that person is and how they actually how much effort they actually want to put in. Mm -hmm. um, now, you know, there are a lot of sellers that simply don't want to put in the effort and halfway through they, they realize that it's just too much work. Yeah. Um, what a lot of them and what, what, when I have these conversations with them, it's really finding out if they want to establish a business more mm -hmm. than anything. So if you want to establish a business, you're not thinking, oh, short term profits, you know, in six months, I'm going to be a millionaire. You're thinking, oh, in five years, you know, this might be my plan. Maybe I can move on to if I'm making tumblers for coffee, maybe I can make wine tumblers, maybe mm -hmm. I can make stainless steel, you know, uh, larger tumblers, maybe I can make this an entire category, and then mm -hmm. build my brand around it. Mm -hmm. um, so it really depends on how much work the sellers want to put in. 
Uh, now, I recommend always approaching it as you know a five to ten year plan. But in regard to pricing, uh, it, you want to look at it as quantities. So in you know right now, maybe you can only do two hundred units. That's what your budget allows, and that's yeah. how much you, how many units you want um, to test the market. And that's perfectly fine. There there are some factories that are willing to do that. Now you're probably going to be paying more because the quantities are lower uh, and the the manufacturing process doesn't change for them, um, and you know likelihood of also wanting a customization are high. Uh, you know wanting to have a customized box or having to want to put your logo on it or change something about the product. So that increases the cost there. Um, now think about okay in six months I was selling 200 units to begin with, but in six months I think I could get to 500. Now the price isn't going to decrease as dramatically as a lot of sellers think. It's not you know, a B2C mentality where you might be buying custom shirts and from one to a hundred it's you know, two dollars and then from a hundred to five hundred it's a dollar fifty. Mm -hmm. um, they're, they're very marginal changes uh, and differences in regards to long-term strategies uh, for pricing. Uh, so you're probably not going to be able to achieve anything little, uh, more than about 15 percent. Okay. Uh, and that's 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 still pretty high. Mm -hmm. um, and it obviously also depends on if you're working with a manufacturer, if you're working with a trade agent. Trade agents have a little bit more wiggle room and they're able to lower prices because they have the margins on them. Um, but factories are already running on such low margins. It's hard for them to say, yes, you know, at 500 units, only 300 units more, we can drop it down by 5% or 10% or yeah. even 2%. So consider, okay, in six months, I'm going to be trying to sell this many. And then let's say in 12 months, I'm trying to sell a thousand units. So and then you can ask them, okay, at a thousand units, how much would that cost me? Maybe, you know, maybe it's the tooling that they have to change over and, you know, their turn, the turnover rate on that is just so infrequent for them that it costs a lot of money. Maybe mm -hmm. it takes a lot of manpower. Maybe they have to purchase a certain number of raw materials in order to make your product. Um, so, and again, this goes back to the collaboration and the partnership and open communication with your suppliers. Uh, but in regards to timing and, and pricing strategy, uh, think of it as quantities, so incremental quantities. So at 1,000, how much can I get? At 2,000, at 5,000, at 10,000. And then how much of a container does that fill up? Right. Realistically, if, if 10,000 units fills up one container, then that is going to be your most optimal price, um, no matter what. If you start filling up a second container, you're going to have to pay for the space in that second container too. So. Um, obviously the best pricing that you could get is for a full container. Okay. Yeah. That's good. Um, let's switch gears a little bit and talk about um, the market that's out there today and, mm -hmm. and consumer uh, desires and where they're going. Uh, we are at, almost at the end of 2019 today. Um, what trends are you seeing uh, and beyond like what you could get on Google Trends, just your own experience of what consumers are wanting um, and how that's affecting the opportunities that are coming up over the next year or two? And I, I don't know if this is necessarily a trend, but everyone wants to get the cheapest product possible. Mm -hmm. And, and you know, it's, it's very cliche where uh, a lot of our users tend to come to us when they're, when they're inexperienced with sourcing and say, you know, I want the best quality at the best price. Because mm -hmm. um, there's an entire range of qualities and the prices are going to correlate to those qualities. Um, but I've, I have been seeing more and more users push for a lower price. And I'm not sure if that's just because of the competitiveness on Amazon and just mm -hmm. trying to, you know, beat someone else's price. Um, but that is one trend. Um, another fairly big trend and, and growing market that I've seen, at least in regards to requests, is, is home decor. Mm. Um, and having very fancy and, and new home decor. And you know, when I speak to some of them, I ask them, you know, where do you get your ideas? And some of them say, you know, I'm looking at Australia or I'm looking at China and seeing what mm. they have and you know what we don't have. Um, yeah. And so trying to build a brand around that. Um, you know, some of them also look at Kickstarter. Some of them look at, you know, Jungle Scout, obviously, and just see what's trending there. Um, but home decor is one area that I have seen uh, on the rise. 
Okay, that's interesting. Let's dig into that a little bit. Um, do you see any particular trend makers like maybe house.com or, uh, you know, you look at some of these TV shows that are focused on decorating. Are you noticing that there are any trends being set by any particular outlet or media source or anything like that? And if you don't, that's fine, but just curious if you're noticing anything. I, I honestly don't pay too much attention to those. Yeah, um, yeah the, uh, a couple years ago when we first started, I would attend a lot of trade shows and I would see a lot of the trends actually be in the trade shows and a few years later they get picked up. Mm -hmm. um, so that's one area, uh, but I, I don't pay too much attention to what other trends that are out there. What about long-standing dependables? You know, what's something that is not just on trend, but something that people are always going to need that uh, a new seller might look into as a market to get into? So the competitiveness is is the biggest thing there. Uh, mm -hmm. How much are you willing to buy, and how much are you willing to spend in marketing? Uh, you know, the PPCs are going to just and PPC pay per click uh, ads are just increasing more and more for everyday items because the supply is just increasing. Um, and, you know, a lot of them tend, I, I've seen this, uh, a lot of them turn to price wars where you go mm -hmm. on Amazon and you are like, how is that product even at, you know, $7 when that's realistically like a $20 product? It's because yeah. they're just trying to beat out the competition mm -hmm. um, and just trying to, you know, get them off of Amazon. Um, so I would, I would just be wary of that. Okay. Yeah. I, have, I have another cat who's trying to infiltrate our in interview here. I really <laughs> should get a cat wrangler before I start my interviews. How many cats do you have? Oh, like 73. No, <laughs> um, but they like being in here and uh, they like being on the desk or my lap. So it's fun during the day. It's tough when you're trying to get business done. The most inconvenient places. <laughs> yeah. They're like, how much can I inconvenience them here? Yeah. And what if I lay here? <laughs> yeah, exactly. They, they have a spreadsheet that they enter it into. They do uh, roundups and debriefs after we go to sleep. It's like, well, about 53% annoyed. So maybe if we <laughs> push it a little bit, get more in his face, we could push it to... Uh, Let's try the mic next time. Let's knock over the mic. Exactly. It starts <laughs> purring right into the mic. That's a different kind of interview. All right. So... Um, you talked about, uh, you had a great interview where you talked about some of basically your motivation, your personal motivation for doing this. And you come from an engineering background, but you help real people every single day and you, you help facilitate these success stories. So tell us some of those. What are some of your favorite moments over the last few years in doing this work? And so, and, and they might not seem so great to some, but I, I get a personal satisfaction in a lot of these. Yeah. Uh, I've seen a lot of Amazon sellers that I, you know, start off speaking to and they have a very small budget. I'm talking like $2,000 for delivered, you know, delivered goods. Yeah. Um, and they've, you know, struggled on Alibaba or, you know, they've gotten ripped off in the past by a different company. Um, and a lot of them I've seen grow from placing $2,000 orders to $8,000 orders within a year. Mm -hmm. And that do that does not seem like much uh, in regards to monetary value, but that means they quadrupled the size. You know, they hunt they four hundred x the yeah. size that they're able to sell. Yeah, which to me personally is amazing, and, and and that's one of the biggest reasons that I you know chose to be with Novaland is is because we want and 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 you know our founders are strongly behind this. We want to work with small to medium sized businesses and help them grow. Yeah. Um, and, and that's one of the biggest uh, issues out there right now is is the misinformation and a lot of companies and gurus and, you know, sites like Alibaba make it difficult because there is misinformation. They make it seem very easy. And that's mm -hmm. a very costly learning curve. Yeah. Um, and, and me coming from a background where, you know, I've, I've seen my mom struggle for money. You know, she's a, she was a single mom and um, I know how important it is to to not lose that two, those $2,000 that maybe you saved up over the past two, three years yeah. and then invest that and invest all the time you can into selling on Amazon. Mm -hmm. So seeing, you know, 
and there's dozens of success cases. Uh, I, I, I can't put out names because we, we don't release any name for anyone. <laughs> but just seeing those, those uh, that growth, uh, to, to me, it gets me super excited. Yeah. And, and just just even thinking about like, okay, next year we have 2020 coming up, you know, right after Chinese New Year. I hope we have a bunch of Amazon sellers that are just ready to go. I think it's something like 3,000 Amazon sellers a day sign up wow. um, to, to, you know, sell on Amazon. Mm-hmm. And so if we could even get a little piece of that and help them grow their business and help, uh, you know, help maybe their family have an extra thing on Christmas uh, yeah. next year, uh, that, that that's something that's amazing to me. Yeah, absolutely. So let's back up. I I love that. And that's inspiring to me because so many people are just in it to make money. But the fact that you're getting personal satisfaction out of it, I can see why you're driven to continue doing this. Um, You mentioned $2,000 being a small amount or a minimum amount even to get started. building your own private label and which I don't think we've defined yet for people who don't know what a private label is. So let's talk about that first. What's a private label brand? Yeah. So essentially it is taking a product and quite literally putting your label on it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, So, uh, and a lot of times it's, you know, uh, you want to trademark your brand um, and from there build your brand out. Okay. Right? So you customize your packaging. It could be even something as simple as just putting a sticker on a product. Yeah. And it could be, and this is the difference between white labeling and private labeling. Private labeling, typically there's going to be a customization okay. uh, within that product that makes it unique or that makes it better. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas white labeling, uh, you'll take whatever product the factory has on their line and then you'll resell it with your brand on it. Okay. So there's really an element of customization within private labeling. But so if you walk into, let's say the grocery store, you walk into a Kroger and they have a Kroger brand salsa or chips, is that private labeling or white labeling? That's private labeling. Okay. Uh, now, if you go to the, the supplement category and nutrient category on Amazon, mm-hmm. is, I see also that that is a huge trend, mm-hmm. actually, uh, like hangover pills, for example, yeah. um, are a huge trend. What they'll do is they'll go to a factory that's already making you know, the same exact bottle for everyone, the same exact information uh, for, the, for the nutrients, um, same exact you know, custom box and everything, and they just put their, their label on that. And that, that is white labeling. Okay. Whereas someone that goes in and says, you know, we want to change these and we want to change it for this reason. That would be private labeling. Okay. So it's getting the manufacturer to do something different besides just slapping your logo on it. It's actually customizing it to a degree. Yeah. Which yeah, and af- affects the cost, obviously, but there's a reason behind it. Right. Right. And that's you know, circling all the way back to the beginning. That's why it's so important to fully understand your product. I mean, you're yeah. essentially a product manager. Mm-hmm. At that point, right, which is a, a you know a very real position within a lot of companies. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, yeah, that's why familiarizing yourself with the, all the specs and knowing what goes into it uh, is important. Okay, great. Um, I, I that helps clear it up quite a bit. I mean, between private and white labeling, um, and it's a it's a good little test to see how much private labeling is actually in effect is to walk into a grocery store or walk into Target or Walmart and see what their what products have their name on it. I mean, how pervasive through our, and that's, that's kind of a loaded word, but how much do you see private and white labeling on products throughout commerce in the United States? I, I've just seen it grow uh, so much more before you would go to like, uh, you know, you would want to get that name brand Coca-Cola or you would want to get, you know, uh, let's even take it to appliances. You would want to get like a GE fridge because it's a GE fridge. But now a lot more companies are going to these factories and saying, wait, you know, I could actually make a better fridge. And I could sell it for cheaper because I don't have, you know, to spend all the backing that GE has to do and all the overhead. Yeah. So they take that product. They say, you know, maybe I want to move the ice maker a little bit or maybe I want to add an additional feature to it. Uh, and then they private label that and then they push it. Um, and in regards to seeing it every day, I mean, it's in any store that you walk into, uh, unless it's like a Nike store, of course, or an Adidas yeah. store. Yeah. yeah. If it's but brand- even those, those are, all, those are all private labels. Hmm. Yeah. Um, 
Do you guys do any aspect of the marketing for people? Do you help people with that? Or is that another, you guys specialize in what you do and then let people handle the next step? Yeah, so we specialize in what we do, uh, but we do work with a lot of our users to make sure that they have as much uh, information and content for the marketing as possible. Okay. Um, so anything that we can get for them, whether it's certifications or finding out that the product uh, material is actually recyclable or biodegradable, uh, finding out something that's different between their product and something else that the factory manufactures. We try to provide them with that information. Okay. And that way they're prepared for, for marketing. Gotcha. Okay. So getting into this, let's just run a really rough ballpark. If mm -hmm. I wanted to start a private label brand, and I, I've heard numbers before, but mm -hmm. I'd like to get your take on it. What is the ideal amount if I want to just get into starting something? And I know it's it's a big, wide open field as far as what you can do uh, and what you can spend. But what would you recommend if I were to go to a rich uncle and say, I need this amount of money to get started? That's a great question. Um... to be comfortable and to be able to put money into pay-per-click advertising. Um, what would you, do you think? 5,000, 8,000? I think 10 to 15,000 would okay. be the most ideal. And, and I'm also including reorders mm -hmm. there to make sure that you keep your product in stock because marketing is, is one aspect of it. But when you're selling Amazon FBA, yeah, you're also making sure that they have that item in stock. If you, get on to the first page with certain keywords and then the next day you run out of inventory, but you're on that first page, you're screwed. Yeah. You're, and it's um, weeks, if not months to get everything made. Right. And all the money that you had just invested to get to that first page. Now it's all lost. Now you have to start from scratch. Okay. So I, I would say about 10 to 15,000 to, to be fairly successful and test the market uh, and, and make sure that you are establishing, you know, your own brand, your own product. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's a pretty good, it, in my head, a, a pretty good ballpark figure. And of the customers, and this is a loaded question a little mm -hmm. bit, but if of the customers you work with, the clients you work with, how many do you see succeed into a second and third order? We won't talk about five, 10 years down the road, but into a second and third order. The majority, definitely, I would say about 85 80 to 85% come back for a second order. And yeah. if not, um, and that's just for reorders, but I, yeah. but if not, I do see a lot of them pivot also mm -hmm. because that, you know, they were able to sell the product and maybe they lost a couple hundred, maybe a couple thousand. Um, but they are, they, they're more familiar with the process. And yeah. It's, it's all a learning process yeah. continuously, you know, trying to get free content online, whether you're part of a course, whether you're, you know, you have a one-on-one -on -one coach, um, it's it's all a learning process, and um, yeah, yeah, I would say a, a lot of them are, are very successful. And I know you guys have a lot of good content on your site as far as learning how your process works and how to get into it in general. So I know that's a good place to start. Um, we've talked about Amazon. Um, do you recommend that anybody who gets into private labeling work directly or start on Amazon because of the built-in uh, market? Or do you, would it make sense to, or when would it make sense to say, open a Shopify store and do your own work, do your own uh, kind of fulfillment and that sort of thing? Well, I think it's uh, really the time commitment that they could have. So if you could invest you know, your full time uh, I, I would really suggest familiarizing yourself with one or the other uh, first. Um, okay. Now, of course, if you do Shopify, then you could also do FBM instead of FBA. Mm -hmm. So you list your product on Amazon, but you fulfill it yourself through your own warehouse or through a third-party uh, logistics you know, company or their own warehouse. Mm -hmm. um, but I've seen, uh, you know, I, I've seen a lot of them go multi-channel after successfully doing something on Amazon FBA. So having just Amazon perform all the logistics and uh, they're only caring about, you know, sourcing the product and then marketing their product. Yeah. Uh, but none of the logistics aspect. Okay, good. Um, 
And just to clarify, FBA versus FBM. FBA is Amazon is you've shipped your product directly to them. Amazon, when an order comes in on their platform, they then pick it, put it in a box, ship it to the customer. You never have to do any of that, but you do pay a fee, correct? Right. And then FBM is the order comes in through Amazon. It's somebody on their platform placing an order, but then you as the merchant, you're physically putting that in a box and sending it directly to the customer. Is that accurate? Right. Right. Or you're hiring someone to do that for you. Yeah. A, a fulfillment house, that kind of thing. Fulfillment center. Yep. Yeah. Okay, cool. Uh, we've covered a lot of ground. This has been really good. Do you have anything before we get into our final questions here? Do you have any, uh, anything you'd like to add as far as things to watch out for or what to keep in? We'll, we'll get into more about Noviland, but, uh, anything people should keep in mind when getting into creating a private label? Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think the biggest thing is just making sure that they're prepared um, mm -hmm. with, to invest a good amount of time uh, because you're only going to get out what you put in. Um, yeah. I know, you know, the term passive income gets thrown around a lot, uh, but it only becomes passive after you've invested enough time into it. Um, so I, I would say just you're, you're going to be doing your hours. Yeah. <laughs> it's a second job. So yeah. just be prepared for that. Okay. Uh, I would say it's my biggest suggestion. That's good. Passive income is a dangerous phrase. It is. It is. I've seen a lot of people lose a lot of money because of it. <laughs> yeah. Spend thousands of hours trying to make income passive and it never is. Yeah. Or uh, it's, it's the irony of it. Okay, so three last questions. One is, uh, what music or artists get you through the day? Oh man, <laughs> I guess that uh, that really depends on the time of day. Okay. Um, so, like during the day itself, uh, I'm pretty into EDM, and okay. you know, uh, sometimes it gets a little heavy, <laughs> but it helps me focus. Okay. Um, and it's, it, you know, it was like that through college and it's like that now. So if, if I have my headphones in, I'm, I'm probably during the day, I'm probably playing, you know, nightmare slander, something like that. Okay. Uh, but later in the afternoon, I usually listen to like uh, rap or, you know, Migos is, is probably my favorite artists okay. um, out there. Yeah. Okay, cool. Have you ever heard of, uh, an artist called knife party? No, sounds aggressive. <laughs> Um, it's on the, so I don't know a whole lot about EDM. I, mm -hmm. I'm familiar with it and I know certain artists, but knife party is one that sort of borders on like the, uh, the drum and bass side of things. Um, so that's one that I've really gotten into. They have a, a great song called centipede and basically they've come up with a sound that sounds like a centipede would sound if it were all digital or something. <laughs> Um, All right. Yeah, I'll check them out. Okay. And then uh, what beverage starts your day? And if it's coffee, specifically, you're in a great part of the world of the country for coffee. And if not, that's fine. But what about at the end of the day? What's quitting time? Uh, what are you? What are you drinking? So start my morning. Honestly, I know, you know, being in the Bay Area, I can get a lot of good coffee out there. Uh, but it's whatever we have in the Keurig box. Okay. <laughs> I just randomly grab one out. Um, and my last drink, uh, I mean, I'm usually, uh, frankly, I'm usually in the office until about 7 or 8 p.m. and it's usually coffee. Mm. Uh, yeah, I try to stay hydrated with some water throughout the day, but uh, that's usually my first and last drink. Depends if it's Friday, though. If it's Friday, it's a little different. <laughs> what, what, are you, what are you drinking on Friday? Fridays, it also depends. What are we going to do that weekend? <laughs> We're going out to the bar. It's uh, going it's out to the bar week, week at work. We're going to get some drinks. What are you getting? Probably a kettle one cucumber mint with some water and a splash of cranberry. And and one of my good friends actually introduced me to that a few years ago. And uh, ever since then, that's that's been my go-to drink. 
That's awesome. <laughs> I'd like to see a uh, Monday morning where you reverse those. It's that <laughs> in the morning and then coffee before you go to bed. Uh, talking about sloppy sourcing right there. Sloppy sourcing. <laughs> <laughs> um, who was get there was some writer. Um, I don't remember who it was who said that it's substances to for creativity and then coffee to execute what it is you're trying to get done. So, yeah. I well, I guess I guess we'll, we could test that out. <laughs> Let's see. We have holidays coming up. Absolutely. Maybe on one of the off days, we'll see. Uh, maybe, maybe it'll work better. Report back. <laughs> let us know how it goes. I will let you know. So uh, finally, how what's the best way for someone to learn more about you and Noviland? What's give us a next step or a call to action? Yeah, yeah. So I would say uh, definitely next steps would be going to noviland.com. Uh, you know, we have as much information as possible there. Uh, one of the biggest things that you know we're very proud of is that we're very responsive, uh, mm -hmm. no matter what platform it is, whether it's Facebook Messenger. Uh, LinkedIn, whether it's you know, phone calls, uh, no matter what the means are, whether you want to email you know, info at noviland.com or reach me directly, you know, Francois at noviland.com, I'm very responsive. Um, but I would say, you know, check us out. Make sure that you, you're ready to start sourcing. You have the product idea, you have the product specifications, and then hit that sign up button. I think it says uh, start sourcing at the top, top right corner. Um, and it's, it takes quite literally two minutes to sign up less than two minutes. I think it's like three fields, uh, and you could start sourcing right away. It's, it's, you know, you put in your RFQ, start getting pricing within a few days. Um, and then again, we're accessible. You could give us a call. You could, uh, shoot us an email, text me, do whatever. <laughs> okay. So we have noviland.com on the screen for anybody watching over video. Um, as far, <laughs> as far as, uh, if folks are, are listening only give us the phone number and the website. Yeah. So our phone number is 800-835-8601. Um, and my personal extension, if you are watching this podcast, uh, this interview is, is 701. So 800-835-860, extension 701. And I promise I, if I don't get to you immediately, uh, I will reply. Uh, or you can shoot me an email at francoisnoviland.com. Um, or you could shoot us a message on Facebook. It's a lot quicker, too. We have a whole team that uh, you know responds on Facebook, too. Good. Cool. All right. Well, you have been listening to and watching, uh, uh, this is side hustle elevator. I'm, I'm distracted again because my cat <laughs> came back. He, it's almost like he knew that, uh, we were winding things up. So my name is Benjamin Portnoy. You have been listening to and watching Francois Jeffrey, the director of business development at Noviland. And uh, to learn more about us at Side Hustle Elevator, first thing you can do is go to sidehustleelevator.com if you're not already there. We also have the audio version of the podcast on iTunes, on Google Play, and just added on Spotify. So go there. And Rex is saying goodbye. Uh, <laughs> otherwise, guys, we'll talk to you later. And thanks so much for tuning in. Hey, thanks for checking out the episode. To learn more and get all kinds of free resources to help you in your own side hustle, go to www.sidehustleelevator.com. See you next time.